Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee and and let's let's get get our fix. fix. Today we are going to be talking about part one of the FBI's most wanted list. I am drinking a chestnut praline latte and Kylie is drinking her white chocolate mocha. Iced of course. (laughs) Always iced even at like 40 degrees outside. Always iced. Iced is the way to go. So if you're interested in knowing some delicious at-home coffee recipes or some of my favorite products you can head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com. I have some information on there. Uh, We do want to give a huge shout out to our fellow crime addicts who have liked and followed us. We seriously can't thank you enough for your encouragement and excitement. If you haven't already, don't forget to like, follow, and share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on Twitter, Facebook, IG, YouTube, and TikTok, or at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. All right, let's get into it. So talking about the FBI's most wanted list, we're going to start with talking about its history, some fun facts, where it came from, and I'm going to apologize in advance because my allergies have been kicking my butt this week, so (laughs) we are over here a little raspy, but we promise it'll get better. We're pushing through. We didn't want to miss this. We've been excited for this release, so not even allergies was going to stop us on this journey. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the FBI's most wanted list. It very first started back in the 1950s. It was published on March 14th, 1950, and it actually began over a card game, if you can believe it or not. So it actually began as a news article from a reporter, James F. Donovan, who was playing cards with the FBI director at the time, who was J. Edgar Hoover. He's infamous. I think many of us know him. Uh, He... uh, was asking him, hey, like, who are the 10 toughest guys that are currently loose in America (laughs) just over some random card game they were playing? And um, it became so popular after he had published the article. And so Hoover just decided to formalize it and make the list a a top 10 FBI's most wanted list. And from then on, we've even to this day, we have this list now. That's so cool. I agree. For the last 71 years, the Federal Bureau of Investigation's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list has put the fates of some of the most hardened and dangerous criminals in the nation in the public's hands. So that's kind of cool because we get to be a part of it. As of October 29th, 2021, there were 525 fugitives that have been listed. 10 of them have only been, only 10 of them have been women. That's incredible. 490 of them were captured and located, which if you do the math, that's 94% of people that have made it to this list have been captured. Um, 162 of them, which is 31% of that 94%, are due to the leads that they received from citizens who saw the names and the faces in the various publications or on TV, in the newspaper, whatever it was at the time. Um, and so I would say out of 90, out of hundred percent of the 525 fugitives that were on the list, having 94% of them caught and of that 94, 31% of that being from the public, I would definitely say that this list is a success. From a card game. All from a card game. <laughs> Pretty awesome. I mean, and a clever journalist. Yes. That's very true. Who just came up with this, hey, tell me about this. And he just happened to know the FBI's director and and they just kept going. That's wild. That interaction was definitely meant to be to set history. I 100% agree. Everything happens for a reason. Totally. A few fun facts would include that once you're actually 
on the list, there is only a few ways that you can get removed. So of course, if you're captured, um, if the charges are dropped, or if you die. Well, <laughs> maybe not so sad. <laughs> <laughs> like not the worst things, I'm sorry, that would happen. So speaking of women, um, the very first woman that was added to the list, it was in 1968, and her name was Ruth Eisman Shear. So the FBI's most wanted list is also typically limited to only 10 fugitives at a time, but under special circumstances, that can change. For example, in 1970, there was 16 fugitives listed on the most wanted list, and that is the highest that ever was placed in history. That's a lot. That is a lot. So one of an example of the special circumstances was in 1997, where they added more than 10 fugitives. They were on the search for Andrew Cunanan. Do you remember, or does that sound familiar to you at all? Absolutely. (laughs) So this man, yeah, he is the one who killed our fashion designer, Gianni Versace. And others. Jerk. You know, it wasn't just the one, but he has done many, but that was the main killing that got him placed on the list. So he was on the list for about six weeks before he was found dead in a Miami boathouse. Eh. (laughs) so another fun fact is the list does reveal a lot about which types of crimes happen to be in fashion during that given era so for example in the 50s the list included bank robbers car thieves and murders in the 60s when political protests were kind of the norm the list included people charged with sabotage kidnapping or destruction of government property In the 70s, many fugitives were wanted for organized crime or terrorism. And then when we get into the 2000s, the list includes international terrorism, serial killers, drug traffickers, and other white-collar criminals. I mean, gosh, it just keeps getting worse. It really does. Oh, my gosh. Over time, it just keeps getting worse. So James Earl Ray was actually put on the list twice. I mean, you really have to be a failure at life to not only make the list, but make it twice. Like, how in the world? Okay, so what happened? So the first was in 1968. He was wanted for assassinating Martin Luther King Jr. Oh. And then the second was in 1977 for only two days because he escaped from a Tennessee state prison. Um, I'd say he deserved them both. Definitely. So fun fact also, there is actually no time limit on being added to the FBI's most wanted list. So the crime could have been committed many years prior and only now being added to the list. For example, William Bradford Bishop Jr. murdered his wife, mother, and children with a hammer in 76. That's got to be one of the top 10 worst ways to go. A hammer. A hammer. Oh my gosh. Like, you're going to feel that. You feel it. You most likely have moments afterwards where you have time to think about what happened and like wonder and fear. And it's just, it is heartbreaking, especially his own mother and children. Like not that being a wife is any less than that, but I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> like I said, this happened in 1976, but he wasn't actually added to the list until 2014. That's 38 years later. That's a long time. Yeah. And it was because he was still being at large. Like, they hadn't caught him yet. Wow. So the FBI hoped that the public would recognize him at the age of 79 with age-advancing imagery. But he was only removed after two years because there was no leads. I mean, he was, what, 79? They didn't really think that he would be a danger to the public at that point. Yeah, I mean, he had gone 38 years without, or I guess at that point, 40 years without committing a new crime so they probably thought I mean thought, hopefully unless there's because there's a lot of cold cases out there we don't know 
Right. You know? Absolutely, yeah. I wonder if... I mean, so he was one of the 6% that was never caught, so I wonder what that means with Mm -hmm. him being that old. Like, did he die? Like, where's he at? Yeah. Crazy. Okay, so not only is there no time limit to being added onto the list, like it can, you can have committed a crime 40 years beforehand and obviously get put on the list, but there's also an average stint of time that's on the list. So, of course, there are statisticians out there that keep track of all of these things, but I just think this is so <laughs> fascinating. So, the average stint of time on the list is 316 days, so just under one year. Wow. The shortest stint, so we're going to be talking about the outliers, right? So, the shortest is Billy Austin Bryant. He made the list on January 8th of 1969 when he fatally shot two FBI agents investigating a Maryland bank robbery. He was caught two hours later hiding in the attic of a nearby home. (laughs) So he was only on the list officially for two hours. The longest stint on the list is Victor Manuel Garena. He was placed on the list in May of 1984 for stealing $7.2 million from a Wells Fargo bank depot in West Hartford, Connecticut, while working as an armored car driver. So that's how he had the access to <laughs> oh my it. $7.2 million in 1984. That's a lot now. Can you imagine a, then? That's a lot now. Dang. It's a lot then. The FBI believe he is still in Cuba, but they pursued him for 32 years before removing him from the list. You know what? He used that money. He probably got a whole new identity, booked it out, and he's probably living the life right now he used the money the way he should have used the money yes i mean we're <laughs> gonna listen to a lot of criminals right now who are just kind of like in the brain yes <laughs> yes how they got caught what they did yep. it's it's crazy but i will say he used his knowledge wisely in this one yeah and the funding <laughs> he did he yeah. had the money and he did what he needed to do with it in order to get away with it and so far he has it's yeah. wild Yes. The FBI does have a breakdown of all the crimes perpetrated by offenders in various states, and California doesn't come out looking too good. I'm actually not that surprised. (laughs) Of all criminals, at least 58 committed a crime in California, 38 in Illinois, and 33 in New York. Those are also prone to harboring the most wanted activity. Funny enough, Alaska, Hawaii, North Dakota, and Rhode Island have never had one. Okay, note to self, when I need to relocate next time, <laughs> I need to be looking towards Alaska, Hawaii, Let's North go back Dakota, to Hawaii. Rhode That's my home. Let's go back. <laughs> <laughs> so you can also check out the FBI's Most Wanted app for more in-depth information if you're wanting to. All right. So we are now going to move into talking about the original 10 fugitives that were placed on the FBI's most wanted list when it was first created by Hoover um, off of that news article that we talked about in the very beginning. The OGs. The OGs. Let's get into it. So the very first man ever placed on the list is named Thomas James Holden. He was born in 1899 in Chicago, Illinois. His nickname was Tough Tommy, (laughs) and he was part founder of the Holden Keating Gang. The gang robbed banks, trucks, and trains for cash across the U.S. He was arrested in March of 1928 after an accomplice confessed to their part in a mail train robbery in Illinois. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison. You would think the story stops there, but of course it doesn't. After serving two years in the prison, Holden and Keating used fake passes to escape and fled to Minnesota. 
They started a new gang and resumed a spree of robberies. They also smuggled guns and ammunition into Leavenworth, which helped seven other inmates escape. Again, story doesn't stop there. They were apprehended in July of 1931 when the FBI agents found them and two other escapees playing on a Kansas golf course. They were living it up. (laughs) They were living it up. He was sent to Alcatraz and served time alongside Al Capone. Uh, During his sentence, his son, Tommy, grew up and joined the U.S. Army. Tommy visited Holden once while he was in custody, but later Tommy actually became ill and passed away. There was some correspondence sent back and forth via letters that they were hoping that he was going to get to see his father one last time, but Holden didn't get out in time because he remained in custody. So Tommy passed and Holden missed it. After his release in November of 1947, he returned home to his wife of 16 years in Illinois. So she stayed by his side this whole time. After only 18 months after being released in June of 1949, he committed three more murders, which you guessed it, include his wife and her two brothers after a night of drinking at a local saloon. One of his brothers was married and he also shot his brother-in-law's wife, But uh, she actually ended up surviving. So he fled and assumed a false identity, working as a plasterer in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, after being put on the most wanted list on March 14th, 1950. His face was all over the newspaper across the whole country. So on June 23rd of 1951, about a year later, a little over a year later, a neighbor recognized him and he was captured while he was at work. He was found guilty of murder in November 1951 and served two years of his life sentence before passing away in jail due to a heart condition at the age of 57. And just to give a little side note, um, his alias when he was living in Oregon, he went by the name of John McColu. Crazy. This guy is a real piece of work. But I mean, something that we're going to see a lot that happened back in the day that doesn't happen now is that escape. Yeah. If he didn't escape, none of that happens. Yep. That's insane. So the second person that was ever added, his name was Morley Vernon King. So born in Wheeling, West Virginia, he ran away from home at the age of 15 and kind of bummed his way around Europe. He eventually landed in Casablanca, Morocco. While visiting Africa... This guy travels a lot. Yeah, he's so, everywhere. So while visiting in Africa, he met his wife, Helen, who was the Countess Cristina de Zoheb of Portugal. She was also touring Africa as a representative for a dressmaking firm. When King and Helen met, she was widowed due to losing her husband in combat. She sounds way too important for this man. Right? <laughs> but it like the way that he's traveling and everything, it makes you seem like maybe he, most likely he had a front. He wasn't, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, he wasn't doing it alone. Yeah. So in 1931, the kings married in Casablanca, Morocco, and sh- that was just shortly after meeting. Um, they went and wandered around their way to the U.S. King was surprisingly, I mean, surprisingly, but not surprisingly, he was fluent in at least four languages. That's crazy. I want to be fluent in at least four languages. I want to be fluent <laughs> in at least one. I feel yeah. like half the time I can't even speak English. True. <laughs> True. So, unfortunately, this love story would come to a tragic end in July of 1947 when he strangled and killed Helen with a men's scarf at a hotel. He then proceeded to shove her body 
in a steamer trunk and placed it under a back porch of a room at a hotel he worked and lived at in San Luis Obispo, California. Then he fled the area. Dirt bag. I mean, what the heck? So he was added to the most wanted list in March of 1950 and was located in October of 51, working at a seafood restaurant in Philadelphia under the alias William Wilson. He was extradited back to California, where he was convicted of his wife's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Nobody knows why he committed that murder, though. That is the strangest mystery of them all. They know he did it, and so you feel sad. You should feel satisfied with catching him and putting him in prison forever but i'm not satisfied why did you do that i need to know why exactly it kind of gives me like this you're just unsatisfied you're like what triggered what clicked in your brain that you wanted to strangle your wife after traveling and you know like i mean like i said she was way too important for him yeah the third fugitive to be placed on the most wanted list was William Raymond Nesbitt. He was born on June 1st of 1899 in Marshalltown, Iowa, and had many previous jobs. Just to make a note that these were all very legal. Uh, he was a box maker, a butcher, an electrician's helper, a laborer, a shoemaker. So sounds pretty handy. Um, pretty good handyman. But um, he was more famously known as a jewel thief in the 1930s. And just to make a note, this is not legal. So double life. Apparently those legal jobs (laughs) weren't good enough. Um, On December 22nd of 1936, with three other men and one female, they burglarized a wholesale jeweler in Sioux City, Iowa, and reportedly stole more than $37,000 worth of jewels. Wow. One of those men went by the name of Harold Baker and the female with those four men was his girlfriend. So while, uh, on December 31st, 1936, they drove to Minnesota to obtain dynamite to make nitroglycerin. This, this story is hilarious. Yeah. This isn't a good start to a short story already. Um, when they start including dynamite and things like that into his stories, you know, it's going to be a bad one. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, Let's see. When they get there, a fight ensued. So Baker's girlfriend, he, uh, she attempted to break it up and, you know, was kind of like telling them to knock it off and just break up the fight. Well, our man Nesbitt struck her in the head with a hammer, which is apparently a trend. Apparently. Multiple times. And one of the men shot her while Baker was unconscious in the powder room at Nesbitt's hand. So there's just a big fight going on. Nesbitt knocks Baker unconscious while his girlfriend's trying to break it up. She He hits her in the head. She gets shot by one of the other guys. It was just total oh chaos. So they drug his girlfriend into the powder house with Baker. So now the, the couple is both in the powder house. One of the men lit a fuse to some powder and fled the scene. Baker's girlfriend was severely beaten and wounded, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> but somehow she this girl was a fighter. She was still conscious and was able to crawl away. The fuse exploded 3,500 pounds of dynamite and 7,000 pounds of black powder. So this killed Baker, uh, and somehow she was able to get away, and she survived. I don't know how that's even possible, because this explosion rocked the countryside. I mean, it shattered windows, mirrors, glassware, everywhere. And this was even all the way out to Sioux Falls, which was five miles away. Right. I mean, not to even mention, though, she's already beaten and shot shot and like and then she survives this dynamite explosion this girl's like wonder woman or something 
She yes, was, we are. <laughs> later, she was in a film and goes by the role of Wonder Woman. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's how the story ends. Yes. The end. <laughs> Happy ending. <laughs> no, uh, unfortunately, that is not it. But Nesbitt was arrested for the murder of Baker on February 26, 1937, and he was actually arrested in Oklahoma. So they extradited him back to Iowa, and he was convicted on May 28th of 1937. He was sentenced to life in prison. Which on February 18th, 1946, which is a total of nine years, um, it was commuted to a 20 year sentence. So we see this sometimes you'll get a life sentence and then, you know, the laws change over the years and your sentence gets commuted or um, maybe you get you're on death row. And then again, laws change and then they'll say it is retroactive. So these these laws can change over the years. So his life sentence was commuted to, to 20 years in prison after he had already done nine. So you would think. Again, the story doesn't stop. (laughs) You would think it does, but it doesn't. So while he was imprisoned, he became close to the warden and was considered a, quote, trustee and the warden's chauffeur. And it's funny because in jail, trustees actually are even still used today. But maybe not in this fashion, but you can still be a trustee of a jail or a prison, which is really wild. But um, anyway, so he was the warden's chauffeur. He was allowed to run errands for the prison and and chauffeur the the warden around. On September 4th, 1946, he used the errand truck to flee and hiding in some caves along the Mississippi River in Minnesota. On December 26, 1946, he was charged in absentia with unlawful flight to avoid confinement, which is a felony. So just a quick side note for our addicts that aren't aware, absentia is Latin for, quote, in absence. AKA the trial was conducted without the defendant being present. This could be for many reasons, but in this particular case, Nesbitt waived his constitutional right to face his accusers because he fled. Mm. So that's just kind of a little side note for our addicts that weren't aware of what being charged in abstentia means, because we are going to see that later as well. So on March 15th, 1950, he became the third person added to the FBI's most wanted list. Three days later, some kids who knew him from playing on the Mississippi Riverbanks regularly, they had recognized him from the FBI Most Wanted list that was printed in the newspaper. And so they they told their parents and he was turned into the prison and lost all of his privileges. He was no longer a trustee. <laughs> and just to put a little bow on this story, the kids got a free trip to Washington, D.C. to tour the FBI's headquarters, which was kind of cool. I liked that part. That's really cool. It kind of makes you think, like, I wonder if any of these kids now ever pursued this as like a career yeah it's interesting what they do it would be interesting to see what they do now um and so nesbitt died on august uh in august 1983 at the age of 84 the aliases that he used along the way were lee bradley patrick r davis william r nesbitt (laughs) harry reeves gilbert reynard and frank raymond smith so the fourth person added to the list, his name is Henry Randolph Mitchell. He was born in 1895 in Florida, and his nickname was Little Mitch. He was commonly found at the racetracks, where he also lost a lot of money. In order to pay his debts, he resorted to bank robberies, forgery, and narcotics. On January 21st, 1948, him and his gang robbed the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Bank in Williston, Florida, making off with $10,353. Wow. 
His fellow thief was caught, but he was able to slip away. So a warrant was issued for his arrest, and that's when he was placed on the FBI's most wanted list. This was on March 17, 1950. However, he was never apprehended, and the federal warrant against him was dismissed July 18th of 1958. He was actually on the list for eight years at this point, and the prosecution dismissed the federal warrant due to the statute of limitations, which basically means too much time had passed for them to prosecute. Oh. So at this point, he would have been 63 years old, and they also kind of just suspected that he was dead. Oh, they must have had some sort of evidence to make that assumption. Yeah, because he wouldn't wouldn't just do it. So no one knows for sure what happened to him, though. Someone he owed money to maybe caught up to him before the FBI did. I mean, he, you know, I'm sure he was around there with the tracks and stealing money and all that kind of stuff. Definitely. Um, so he was actually the hardest to catch of all men who appeared on the very first FBI's most wanted list and the last of the original 10 to be removed from the list. Oh, wow. Mitchell was never charged with Williston robbery, but... His record did include bad check passing, grand larceny, narcotics violation, breaking and entering, and forgery. So he was never actually, you know, charged with the robbery itself, but that doesn't mean that he had a clean criminal rap sheet. Oh, by no means. He was a gem. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. Fugitive number five, Omar August Pinson. Oh, man, this man. Okay. Okay, so he was born on March 31st of 1918 in Joplin, Missouri. So there was a lot of moving around in this case, and he is really difficult to track, and he switched states quite a bit of times, so try to stick with me here. So he was first convicted in January of 1936 of armed robbery. Okay, he was sentenced and served 18 months in the Eldora, Iowa State Reformatory. Okay, then in 1941... He was sentenced to the Missouri State Penitentiary for automobile tampering. After serving his time, he was released, switched states again, and in 1944, he got a trip to the Washington State Prison in Walla Walla, Washington for burglary. He was released in 1945. On April 15th of 1947, after a burglary, Pinson shot and killed an Oregon State police officer by the name of Delmond Ronduin. This was in Hood River, Oregon, and after Ronduin saw the burglary in process across the street from the police station, he did his his due diligence in serving and protecting the community, so he approached the scene, and Pinson shot Ronduin in the chest. Ronduin was unable to make was able to make it back to the station, but was fatally wounded and died there. After just 24 hours, local officers caught Pinson after he crashed through a roadblock and wrecked his stolen car in an 80-mile-an-hour chase, escaped on foot, and hid in a boxcar in Ordnance, Oregon. My goodness. He was sentenced to life in prison for first-degree murder on May 24th of 1947, but he uh, to be served in the Oregon State Penitentiary. He served just over two years before escaping with his cellmate on 1930-1949. So here we are again with an escapee. The charge of unlawful flight was added after the escape. They were not sure if he was even alive because his accomplice was captured and advised that Pinson had been injured and was left in the forest, quote, more dead than alive. When the escape route was retraced in hopes of locating Pinson's body, it was never located. Soon after, it was discovered he was using aliases to avoid authorities. 
He became wanted in eastern Washington and Idaho for burglary under the under an alias name. On January 30th, 1950, he evaded a shootout with the police in Poison, Montana, after burglarizing a hardware store. These acts helped Pinson earn his spot on the FBI Most Wanted list on March 18th, 1950. It was learned by the FBI that he was that he had bought a car in South Dakota under another alias, but had not picked up the title. So they placed a red flag alert on his file. So this is back in the day when they have a physical file and they placed a physical red flag in the file so that when the DMV associate pulls the file, they'll see the FBI flag. So on August 28, 1950, he was arrested at the DMV in Pierre, South Dakota, because he did not know that they were connecting him to his alias names. He had no idea. So he showed up ready to use an alias, get the title for his vehicle, and move on about his life. After a struggle and an attempt to escape again, he was apprehended and extradited back to Oregon State Penitentiary on September 5th of 1950. He then made parole in 1959 and became a, quote, model parolee, respected family man, and a successful worker whose main regret is that he can't change his past. And this is all according to an article in the October 5th, 1975 edition of the Eugene Register Guard that features an interview with Pinson 15 years after he was paroled. He died on October 20th, 1997 at the age of 79 while living in Los Angeles County, California. The alias that he used over the years was John Omar Pinson, August Pinson, Joseph Anthony Dorian, Tony Dorian, Sam Signiti, and D.C. Audell. D.C. Audell is the one that, that ended up catching him at the very end. It always kind of intrigues me on how a lot of these aliases are either super close to their real names or completely like out of left field. Like, do they just look in the mirror and say, today I look like August Pinson. And then the next month, I look like a Joseph Anthony Dorian. Like, yeah. how do they even think of these? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, there's got to be some form of influence to making mm-hmm. the decision of these yeah. names. But, I mean, I feel like for him, it's a little bit scary with his name being Omar to start going by Sam and Tony yeah. and DC and John and August and Joseph. I mean, that's not anything close to Omar. So if somebody hollered at him like, hey, Joseph, what makes him respond to that? I mean, <laughs> he's going to keep walking saying like, what? Who are you talking my to? Name? <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot my name was that today. Sorry. I'm in a different state with a different name. I had no idea. Yeah. That's crazy. That has to take some really good memory on that end. Yeah, and that that guy was just a total dirtbag, so moving on. Moving on. Number six, Lee Emery Downs. This man was born April 2nd, 1906 in Butte, Montana. He entered a telephone company in San Jose, California, subdued and tied up the employees, then made off with $10,800 from their safe. One of the hostage employees who was hogtied, told police that she had noticed a 1948 beige Oldsmobile parked outside immediately before the robbery. So the car was traced back to an alias Downs used. Downs was thought to be connected to a series of clever burglaries and robberies up and down the Pacific coastline. So he was placed on the most wanted list on March 20th, 1950. He attempted to hide with his wife, but was arrested in a trailer park in Daytona Beach, Florida 
on April 7th, 1950. So this was only after spending less than a month on the most wanted list. Dirtbag. And tell me why you stole how much money and you're being found in a trailer park? I don't even... <laughs> oh, like what? Ugh, we've talked about some of these criminals are just nonsensical. None. So he was arrested while working on his 1949 Lincoln. When arrested, they discovered two pistols, six rifles, nine sticks of dynamite, 12 fuses, and two bulging leather suitcases full of bullets. Jeez Louise, he was loaded. He was ready to go at any point. Well... Good thing he didn't get to utilize that. Right. He would rather be working on his car. Dirtbag. <laughs> so he was returned to San Jose, California and was convicted of robbery. In 1968, he was paroled after serving 18 years. Shortly after his release, was arrested again for trying to rob the Colombian consulate in San Francisco, California. He was returned to jail for a parole violation. Shocker. I mean, shocker. Downs was an expert safecracker and skilled holdup man. Some of the aliases that he went by included Emery Lee Downs, C.E. Gardner, Harold Gordon, Lee Harrington, Lee Landers, Ed Morris, Charles Murphy, Lee Murphy, Frank Ralston, and Gabe. <laughs> I, Just I, Gabe. I, I, so do you just want to spend the whole hour talking about all of his aliases? Jeez Louise, this man had like a whole credit's worth. I think his favorite word was Lee. I think yeah. that was like the one thing that he noticed would help him remember who he was. Yeah, I mean, well, that was his first name. He just switched up the last name. So I guess that is like what we were talking about. Like it, you at least respond. You know to respond to that because that's your real name. Right. Well, all right. Moving on to dirtbag number seven. All right. So, all right. Moving on to number seven. Orba Elmer Jackson. Born on May 20th, 1906 in Missouri. We've had a few of those already. He dropped out of school in the sixth grade in 1924 at the age of 18. He was convicted of grand larceny of an automobile in Joplin, Missouri and sentenced to six years prison at the Missouri State Penitentiary. In 1928, after only four years, Jackson was released from prison, and in the same year, he was again convicted of car theft and sentenced to three years at the United States Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas. On April 8, 1936, Jackson was convicted for beating a man and robbed a store, also serving as a United States post office, making this automatically a federal crime. And this was all near Poplar Bluff, Missouri. So he was returned to Leavenworth and sentenced to 25 years prison. So you have to think about, like, have you ever been in those little convenience stores where it's like maybe a gas station and a convenience store on one side and like a restaurant on another side? And maybe they have like a, a counter for the United States Post Office. Or, oh, yeah. So yeah. with that's kind of what this store was to just to give you like a visual. So he went into the convenience store portion of it, but because it was connected to the post office, it was a federal crime, even though he didn't do anything to the post office. So Jackson became a model inmate and eventually a trustee when he made his escape. So this is, we've seen this before. On September 3rd, 1947, he was transferred to an honor farm, but disappeared three weeks later. He relocated to Aloha, Oregon, where he lived on a farm for free and picked berries. 
On March 18, 1949, he was indicted by the federal grand jury at Kansas City, Missouri, and charged with unlawful escape. He was added to the most wanted list on March 18, 1950, and was apprehended on March 23, 1950, at the Berry Farm due to a suspicious co-worker. He was convicted of unlawful escape and sentenced to two years to run concurrently with his sentence being served and returned to Leavenworth on September 19, 1950. I'm going to take a little sidebar for our addicts here for just a moment to talk about the difference between concurrently and consecutive. So when you're sentenced in court, you can either, if you have more than one count or more than one case, the judge will decide to run it either, the sentence is either concurrent or consecutive. Concurrent means when the sentences are to run at the same time, and consecutive means when the sentences are to run back to back. So to give you an example, let's say we have an offender with either two counts to serve one year each or two cases to serve one year each. Either way, it would be the same amount of time. If they were ordered to run concurrently, that means he would serve a total of one year before he was eligible to be released. When it's sentenced to run consecutively, that means he would serve count number one or case number one, and then he would start and serve count number two or case number two. So ultimately, at the end of the day, he would serve two years for both counts or cases. So concurrently is like overlapped and then consecutively is like one after another. Correct. Okay. So for Mr. Jackson, he was released after five years in 1955 because of his sentences being ordered to be run concurrently at the same time. He died on January 8th, 1993 at the age of 86 in Riverside County, California. Fun fact, he painted a beautiful landscape scene and it still hangs at the Heritage Center to this date. Jackson did not agree that his crimes equated to the level of being placed on the most wanted list because he did not know that the post office was a part of the country store that he had held up. And at the end of the day, he also didn't get away with any money. So he did not agree that it escalated to the level of being on America's most. On I'm FBI's sure most he list. wouldn't agree. But I mean, bottom line, you are doing something that you're not supposed to be doing. And they were looking for you at the time that they were making the list. So exactly. you made it. You made it. <laughs> His alias that he assumed was Kenneth Van Kempen. So guy number eight is Glenn Roy Wright. This man was born March 16th, 1899 in Malvern, Arkansas. He worked as a laborer, plumber, steam fitter, tool dresser, and a welder. Again, all very legal jobs. Very legal. He had a few physical markings, um, and these came from a gunshot wound on the outer left forearm, about five inches above from his wrist, a scar from a cut on his left side of his chin, and a scar on the cheek near his left eye. God, was this man living in the wild, (laughs) wild west? What the hell? (laughs) I mean, maybe, and who knows, maybe like incidents as, as a welder or a plumber, or, I, I don't know. A gunshot know? wound, though. Uh, like, I mean, I've never been shot. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he got one of his clients upset. Uh-huh. I don't know. But so he was actually a former associate of the Carpus Barker gang in 1930 and was not afraid to shoot at police when it came down to it. So here we go. This is why he had those markings. He deserved it. Um. <laughs> He was shot during gun battle with police during his apprehension and was ultimately convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to life in 1934 at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary at McAllister, Oklahoma. 
On September 14th, 1948, this was 14 years later, he escaped from prison. Shocker! (laughs) There are multiple stories out there on how he pulled this off, but some say he convinced the guards to let him visit his mother, claiming that she was ill. Others say he smuggled a gun into the prison and shot his way out. I mean, but regardless, by the time he escaped, the glory days of bank robbering were pretty much done. Um, Wright was charged with unlawful flight on February 8th, 1949. He was added to the most wanted list on March 22nd, 1950. And nine months later, a mysterious tipster who was never publicly identified reported to the FBI that Wright should be at a particular drugstore in Salina, Kansas on December 13th, 1950. Wright was arrested without a fight and shipped back to Oklahoma to complete his life sentence. He died in prison on May 7th, 1954, only three and a half years later. Wow. I wonder kind of interesting of... how he went without a fight. Yeah. You know, with like his glory days in the beginning, how he was... He was immediately out of his element with the bank robbing days in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, he couldn't get away with the things he could get away with before. Yeah, definitely. So some of the aliases that he went by are J.R. Dare, Jack Dare, maybe because he dared... He's a daredevil. (laughs) (laughs) Jag Hudson, Roy Hudson, and Gled Leroy Wright. Here we go with those aliases again. I mean, literally the last one is his name with a Lee in front of Roy. That's the only difference. (laughs) Genius. (laughs) Oh my goodness. All right, let's get into number nine. All right, so the ninth gentleman to be placed onto this list. I don't know if that's the right term, gentleman, but we'll go with it. Henry Harlan Shelton. He was born in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1909. That seems like such a long time ago. Well, some of these were born in like the 1800s. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I'm just looking at them like, wow, it really feels like a long time. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so one of, uh, okay, so Mr. Shelton, one of his first arrests as an adult would be the result of a Michigan bank robbery in which a teller wound up dead. He was sentenced to 60 years in the Michigan Department of Corrections. In 1935, Shelton attempted to make a run for it, but was unsuccessful. So he had attempted an escape, but he didn't get out. On September 5th, 1949, Shelton escaped from custody with a fellow inmate, Sam Lieb, who was serving time for murder. So these two murders are on the loose. They hid in the woods for 12 days until they got desperate. On September 17, 1949, Shelton and Leib became wanted for kidnapping and car theft in Amasa, Michigan. Hmm. They forced an electrician at Knife Point to drive them out of the area, which extended over a couple days from Michigan to Illinois to Wisconsin, then back to Illinois, and finally Indiana. The electrical worker they had kidnapped decided he'd had enough and ran from the car during a meal break in Montmorency, Indiana, and managed to alert Indiana State Police. Shelton and Leib hit the road again and would steal three more cars at knife point before Leib was finally caught because of a skull fracture injury when he failed to clear a fence. So this man (laughs) jumped a fence, (laughs) fell flat on his fucking head to the point that it cracked it, and that's why he got caught. Wow. <laughs> Shelton slipped away somehow and managed to stay hidden throughout the fall and winter. He was indicted on October 14th, 1949, for the charges of kidnapping and car theft. He was added to the most wanted list on March 23rd, 1950. 
Special agents located Shelton at a bar he frequented in Indianapolis on June 23rd, 1950, exactly three months later. And when they approached him, they said, come on, fella, it's over. Shelton responded, that's what you think, while reaching for a 45 caliber pistol he had tucked into his belt. Agents already had their weapons drawn and fired first. Shelton survived the wounds, and on August 21st, 1950, he pled guilty and was sentenced to 45 years for kidnapping and another five years for car theft to run concurrently, so at the same time. Come on, fella. It's over. <laughs> I just wanted to paint a really good, like, southwestern video for you Right? There. <laughs> so um, I do have a fun fact on Mr. Shelton. He had two FBI bullets in his body because I told you they shot at him. So he had two of those bullets in his body, but that didn't stop him from having a beer and a couple of cigarettes with them before they being hauled away because they knew he was going away for oh life. Oh my gosh. They said, any last words? Uh, yes. Give me a cigarette and a beer. Yes. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That's insane. Yeah. So the 10th, very 10th. OG that was placed onto the FBI's most wanted list was Morris Gralnick. He was born on December 27, 1919 in New York City's Lower East Side and had previously worked as a popcorn vendor and candy maker. In March of 1948, Gralnick stabbed his ex-girlfriend multiple times with a pocket knife in Kingston, New York, and she barely survived. In April of 1948, when they attempted to arrest Gorelnik in New York City, he bit the officer's finger so hard, he severed it right through the bone and off of his hand. Oh my gosh, I want to <laughs> gag so bad, but I'm going to save our listeners <laughs> the horrible sounds that would make. But It'll oh my gosh, say. gross! So three months later, on July 11th, 1948, while in custody at the Ulster County Jail, awaiting trial on the stabbing and assault of an officer charges... Gorelnik and four other inmates ripped the plumbing pipes from his cell and used it to brutally beat jailers, allowing him and several other inmates to escape custody. Oh my gosh, this man gives no fucks. They literally took it off of the walls (sighs) and started using it as a baseball bat. Okay. The others were rounded up rather quickly, but Gorelnik stayed on the lam for nearly two years. On July 22nd, 1948, he was charged with unlawful flight from New York, and he was added to the most wanted list on March 24th, 1950. A University of Wisconsin law student notified police that the man that they were looking for was working at Campus Close in Madison, Wisconsin. Goralnik was apprehended, not without a fight, on December 15th, 1950, and was captured. He was extradited back to New York to serve his sentence for his crimes. He died on July 1981 at the age of 61. And with that, let's wrap up this week's episode on the history of the FBI's most wanted list in the original 10 fugitives. Come back next week for another CA meeting where we will dive into part two and talk about the only 10 women to have ever made the list. I am stoked for this one. It's going to be good. Come on back. And don't forget, crime addicts, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.